felt we could. We always knew we had the ability to do it, but we never knew for sure that we'd go out there and do as well as we can. And as you know, just as well as I do, in elite sport, anything can happen. And if we just go back a little bit further, we look at how we started the Olympic Games. It was a really tough start. We played a lot of tough competition and we lost our first three games, which put us under serious pressure. So to bounce back, from that and eventually qualify for the bronze medal match was beyond expectation um and i think i think that just made the story even better to show the resilience not only physically but mentally that the players had um it was actually extraordinary i I get goosebumps just thinking about it now still right and what was the work for you like um, in terms of, I suppose you were mostly working, uh, trying to make people recover from each match. How much pressure was that to do that? And you know, and did you have a player who was on the brink of an injury and you needed to bring her into fitness? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say there was pressure. I, I like to think that I've got, gained enough experience over the years and with knowledge, I back my processes that I put in place. Um, right. I like to think that once I've got the players buy-in, that they understand what we're doing and they put in the effort, then we know that okay, we, we back our preparation and whatever happens, that's what's meant to be. And I think that's the key is any, any system and process that you put in place, you have to back it 100%, otherwise it's never going to work. But for sure, there's always players that you're always worried about that might break down or because you, you never know. It could be a player that you're not expecting that has an acute injury and you've got to do something about it very quickly to try and recover. Or it could be someone that is always on the higher end of the spectrum with the red flag that you've got to monitor very closely and probably adjust training loads and recovery strategies for that player to make sure that they get through the games as well as possible. And the reality for us, Rodriguez, is that as an Indian team, we had to play at 120% every single game to actually compete from a physical perspective. When your technical and tactical abilities are maybe slightly lower than what other teams are from that you're competing against physically, you have to be at your peak every single game. So that's why the physical side of things for us was so important and ensuring that our recovery strategies and our systems of processes and things that we wanted to put in place to ensure that every single game we could play our best team and not only play the best team, get have the best team in the best shape possible for each game was important for us. Right. So let's talk a little bit about those protocols uh, because that's what you specialize in and you've done a lot of research into that in both uh, recovery protocols as well as assessing where the fitness level of the athlete is, where the fatigue levels are. How do you do that? What are the basic tools that you use to assess an athlete's uh, fitness levels or fatigue levels? Yeah, so I think there's many things, but part of my research, we looked at keeping it as simple as possible and trying to collect as much data as consistently as possible. I think that's the key. I think as high-performance athletes, what we need is more consistency rather than the fancy stuff that we can't actually do consistently. What my process was is I wanted to understand the players really, really well and how they're adapting to everything we throw at them every single day. So couple of things that we did was simple wellness questionnaires. So players would submit data to me on a daily basis on just how they feel they're mm-hmm. feeling. And what we found from the research is that subjective data can be extremely useful for us to get a really good indication of how they're adapting to the training from the previous day and how they're adapting from training from the previous weeks and months and so on and so forth. And then you almost start putting a bit of a athlete subjective profile together and you start understanding players a bit better from a 
interpersonal and emotional perspective because it just probes questions. So they also a lot of players don't like to discuss how they're feeling, but they're quite willing to submit yeah. a number on, say, for example, how are you feeling today, one to five. They're quite quite open to submit a number. And then, then you start right. probing, okay, why did you submit that you're not feeling so great today? And you start opening conversations and getting to know your players on a slightly deeper level to understand why it is they're feeling what they is. Because in the elite sport, we get two things. We get a subject of fatigue and we get an actual performance fatigue that athletes have. Right. So with subject of fatigue, that's very individualized and everyone will experience fatigue in a different way and everyone will feel like they're getting fatigued at different points in time. Um, regardless if the yeah. training loads the same, recovery strategies are the same, um, everyone is yeah, individual. Yeah, because fatigue is also a very mental thing. Exactly. I mean, if you're mentally not in a very bright space, that can be very fatiguing. Exactly. And the reality of hockey or elite sport, there's not only the physical side we have to consider, but there's a lot of meetings that take place, a lot of analyzing opponents. And the body, once it mm. perceives a stress, it will respond to that stress, regardless of, regardless of a physical stress, emotional stress, or mental stress, mm. whatever it might be. So we need to take that into account. And then we get the other side of the spectrum, which is actual physical or performance fatigue metrics. And that would be things like when you're looking at GPS data, what is the high speed running output? What are the percentages that they're coming at high speed? What are their sprint outputs? What are their sprint efforts that they are doing within a training session in a match? Are these decreasing significantly over time? Um, are they improving over time? And then we also look at um, a neuromuscular profile. So we'll look at something like a counter movement jump or a pogo hop jump, and then we get, we, we're looking at trying to see, is there an actual uh, force decrement that is appearing within the athletes? Then we're getting this whole holistic neuromuscular profile, if there is a force decrement. So what we do know is that subjective uh, markers will probably manifest more quickly than what um, your actual uh, performance markers will manifest. Um, so that's why those two are so important to use together, because Athletes might be feeling that they are fatigued, but the performance markers are showing, look, actually physiologically, we're looking okay. Let's push on a little bit. And then you're not only growing them physiologically, you're growing them mentally because they become a little bit mentally more resilient to that fatigue feeling also. And that's why right. you have to be collecting quite a broad range of data to try and get a better indication of where your players are at. So it can't just be a subjective analysis, can't just be an objective analysis. It needs to be quite a holistic approach to be able to um, make informed decisions on where the players are at at what period of time. Because even though it's a team sport, you're looking at everybody very, very individually. Everybody is different. Everybody's mental space is different. So you, so that's that becomes important uh, in that sense. Um, and I can see how that will work on me. Like if I'm feeling mentally fatigued, but I'm physiologically doing okay, and you show it to me, and you say, look, your, your performance is fine. I'll be able to kind of ride over that thing. I can tell myself, okay, so I'm actually fine. I can just, uh, you know, keep working through that. That's important. But the yeah. interesting thing that you picked up here, a uh, counter movement jump. You know, I think yeah. a lot of people don't know what that is, but I suppose yeah. it has become very important in terms of showing you uh, what, what the fitness level of an athlete is. So can you tell me what a counter movement jump is and what kind of things does it tell you? Yeah, so in basic layman's terms, someone just stands in the spot and jumps up as high as they possibly can. So nice and easy explanation. Right. But what, so as part of and the... Of course, a lot of people have seen this. A lot of people have yeah, seen yeah. this before games. Uh, 
athletes doing this and maybe they're wondering that maybe they think it's just a warm up but that's not what it is it's actually you assessing things yeah so look you can use a pod warm up but i think um, from our side we use it slightly more um intricately and what we do is the athlete will perform three counter movement jumps generally if you're lucky enough to have something called a force plate you can use a force plate where you get a whole lot of different metrics and outputs so i use the force plate for india hockey um as part of my phd study and what we looked at is a couple of different metrics one would be for example jump height one would be maximum force time to maximum force rate of force development and so on and so forth and um, what i wanted to try and do is actually try and sieve out data that wasn't useful for us because everyone responds differently to different metrics and different metrics look different to different mm. people or um different athletes that are um, exposed to it and i came down to just two simple metrics in the end and we started just looking very closely at maximum force and counter movement jump height and what we were able to see okay. is that there was quite a good relationship between those two metrics as well as wellness data so i knew that right. on a day when we got all the wellness data i would have a subjective readiness to train score that we had calculated in the background for our players according to the data that they submit from a subjective perspective what we found is that when the team subjective readiness to train was high and it sounds obvious uh, when i say this is when the subjective readiness was high the outputs and the physical outputs on the game were always much higher than what they would be when the subjective readiness was low that's not always the case with the physical which is interesting because i think the psychological perception on how you are feeling in elite athletes has a massive effect on them compared to the physical so if someone feels that they're extremely tired regardless of how much i tell them that the physiological parameters are showing that we can push you it's really tough to get them out of that mental unreadiness if you can call yeah. it and um, so that that's why it's important that you get to know your players well so and and yeah so having that counter movement jump as an indicator so i can go to the coach look this player mentally feels really fatigued but i'm not worried let's push on let's push them a little bit harder let's try and motivate them to actually give us the outputs that i feel that they can physiologically because the data is showing me that they are look okay they're not at any risk and they should be fine right such a cool thing that such a simple thing as just three consecutive standing jumps can give you such an important kind of uh, metric and you, you said you're looking at the height of the jump and what was the other one uh, maximum force maximum force how do you define that how yeah so maximum force is just the maximum force that they're able to create to get to that specific jump height it's a metric that's actually calculated within the force plate and okay. and this becomes important because you get within neuromuscular fatigue there's two components it's very difficult to identify the two but you get central and the peripheral components on neuromuscular fatigue so central fatigue okay. would be that you are unable to produce high amounts of force due to the brain not signaling the muscles to contract as fast as they can so that would be a centrally orientated or centrally originated um, fatigue component so you're not getting these um high threshold motor units to fire as quickly as you want or you can have the peripheral fatigue which is not involving the central components with the muscles actually fatiguing and not being able to produce maximum force you don't really differentiate between the two from or you don't at all differentiate from the two for from counter movement jump but you rather look at it a global perspective and with the wellness data we are able to get a better indication of our athletes readiness to perform on each day 
So would you treat these two things differently if you think that somebody has a central, a CNS-induced uh, fatigue or peripheral fatigue? Are the protocols different? So, so yeah, to a certain extent, they would be. So what I would look at, so we actually looked at two things. We look at countermove jump as well as a pogo hop, and a pogo hop is just 10 very fast, rapid jumps. And okay. in theory, we could say the pogo hop has a slightly more central adaptation compared to the countermovement jump. Um, so the countermovement jump would rely on more peripheral aspects, but that's a very theoretical approach to it, but it does seem to steady in the right direction. But why we look at two is that give me a slight indication of the difference between the central and the peripheral um, fatigue factors. But then what I would do in, instead of me looking at the recovery part of it, most of the time we'd look at how can we change the athlete's readiness to perform better on the pitch. So what do I need to do in our priming sessions pre-match to get them stimulated enough to make sure that they're ready to play. So if someone is essentially fatigued, how can I prime this CNS to make sure that they're ready for the game? Or if someone's peripherally fatigued, what do we need to do a little bit different in the priming session to make sure they're ready for the game? And so with the CNS fatigue, we probably need to activate a little bit more and a little bit shorter and sharper type work that we're doing a primer. Whereas with peripheral fatigue, we probably want to look at focus on slightly, if you can call it recovery modalities to make sure that they are not um, their force outputs aren't decreased due to whatever factors might have occurred in the previous game. So that's, a, in a nutshell, what we want to try and do pre-match. Okay. And do these two types of fatigues have different origins? So, yeah, so it depends. For example, if you're doing a heavy lifting session and it creates a lot of DOMS, so delayed onset muscle soreness, that would be like slightly more of a peripheral fatigue or originator fatigue. Um, if you're doing a very high intensity, a lot of sprint work, a lot of high speed running, then you're probably going to have slightly more central fatigue. However, again, it's very difficult to differentiate between the two. So that's why you get this global term called neuromuscular fatigue. Right. Um, and that would be more of an umbrella mm. association with both factors rather than trying to identify the difference between the two because it's extremely difficult to identify between the two. Right. So we, we've got this thing, the counter-movement jump, the pogo jumps. These are two simple things you would do to assess a player just before a match, let's say. What are the things that you would use if you are going to assess a player at the start of a season mm -hmm. and you're going to kind of make a long-term plan for that player? What are the things that you're going to look at? So the process that we use or I use is something, and most um, anyone in my position will generally do it, is something called reverse engineering. So what we the first step is understanding the physiological parameters required at the level of play for this team that you're working at. So, for example, we take field hockey, for example. Right. We're going to say, what, what is it require? What are the requirements for my players to compete physically in international hockey um, in a congested match schedule like hockey generally is or hockey tournaments generally are? And then we work backwards from there. With schedule. These are the parameters we require. What do I need to do to identify what my team needs and what each individual in their position requires? And then we'll do tests. So for we kept it quite simple at Hockey India, and we did a um, yo-yo test. We did an upper body 3RM bench press, pull-up test, squat test. Counter-move jump was part of our testing battery. And then we also did a repeated sprint test. So then we come up with this athletic profile, right. and we get an idea of where we're at physically compared to other teams in the world. And then we are able to work backwards and say, okay, this is where we're starting. This is where we need to go to. How do we get there? And that's when we start doing the whole holistic programming around the strength and conditioning um, that is specifically needed for 
not only the team, but also possibly individuals that are either lagging behind or individuals that are quite far ahead and trying to make sure that, look, it's very difficult to individualize for 33 players, but we try and make sure that we address different issues for different players as much as possible. So I'd say from an individualization perspective, we're probably looking at 70% of the program remains pretty similar for most, and then we're adjusting the rest of the 30% of the program to make sure it's individualized for that individual. And like you said earlier, there are some athletes that we probably have to individualize completely just because of the nature of maybe they've been playing the, um, in, the, in, the, in the system for longer, possibly got more serious injuries or injury history, and then we'll adjust for them a little bit more. Right. And, and would you adjust for, I, I would assume that you would also have to look at things in terms of the positions that they play. Exactly. So, for example, a, a midfielder or, a, or an attacking player is going to maybe run or sprint harder than a defender would have to do, cover more ground, perhaps. That would change how you would tailor the program. 100%, yes. You've hit the nail on the head. So, midfielders and strikers will always cover more high-speed running than defenders. However, defenders will probably do a lot more change of direction, short, sharp movement patterns reacting to the opponents coming towards them. But yeah, 100%, we would at some point within the program need a program specifically to make sure that physically we're meeting demands that are more relevant to that position. Right. Um, So just as we talked about the counter-movement jump as a kind of test for overall neuromuscular activity, can you tell me a little bit about what you just said? One of the things that you use is a 3RM bench press. And then you had a squat test. So what is a 3RM bench press? And and how does that work? So very simply, we just want to get an idea of what is the basic strength profile of players. And very, very simple one, PRM is just an upper body strength test. It's unfortunately not, not very exciting, but it just gives us a good indication of um, upper body strength and relative strength for that individual. The good one is the lower body 3RM plays a bit more important role for us in field hockey, obviously. Um, so having a really robust lower body that is strong enough to sustain different loads at different periods and different capacities as well as the counter-movement jump, so we can see what is the ability to express power from the lower body perspective, because there's only quite a decent... So lower body, you mean you do 3RM squat? Yeah, so 3RM squat... Is that what you're saying? You do a 3RM squat? Yeah, so just as... So first, let me just explain, if somebody somebody who's listening does not know what an RM is, that means just uh, max reputation. Hmm. Uh, So a a 1RM would be the maximum amount you can lift for just one rep of a certain exercise. And so 3RM would be the maximum you can lift for three consecutive reps for an exercise. Why is it that 3RM is such a good indicator? Why, why not five or six? Yeah, or no, no, look, you technically, is there a reason for that? You can use any um, RM that you want, but the higher reps you go, the less accurate yeah. the conversion to one RM is. I use three RM with female players uh-huh. because I just feel that in hockey, you don't have to be as strong as a rugby player, for example. So three RM is good enough for me to get a good indication of your basic relative strength because. In the end, we convert it to a 1RM, but I compare it to your body weight to get a relative strength value. And that becomes more important for me than the absolute value of that you're scoring. So whether you squat 100 kilos is not really that important for me, but I want to see what is the, the strength relative to your body weight at, at different points in time. Right, right. Makes sense. And and also, I suppose 1RM would be an injury risk yeah, if you're possibly, going to use yeah. that for tests yes. regularly. I think if done correctly, they're very safe. But um, with 
hockey and team sports, there's no real off-season anymore, so we don't really get time to test as such. So we can pretty much do three RMs as part of, part of our training program and test more regularly that way. Right. Sorry I interrupted you when you were talking about the lower body assessment. Shall, shall we go back to that? How do you do that? The three RM squat, the counter movement jump? Yeah, sure. So so there's a, the, those are the main two that we all look at. Um, why those become important as well is there's quite a good relationship between a counter movement jump and change of direction ability. So we want to see that, okay, so if someone's right. really struggling with change of direction, it's probably one of the factors is that they aren't able to absorb that eccentric load as well. So that deceleration when they're slowing down. Most people can try and run fast, that's fine. But can they stop as quickly as possible and change direction in a safe way? And that's where some athletes really, really struggle. And with um, most athletes that I've worked with, it's something that you need to work on quite a lot is the, the, the mechanics of deceleration and being able to decelerate and then re-accelerate in whichever direction that you need to um, accelerate it. Um, and a counter movement jump, a poor counter. So does deceleration uh, produce a lot of lot more force on the body than acceleration does? Yeah. So the, with deceleration, you get something called an eccentric load. So a slight, so an eccentric load is like an elongation of the muscle, an eccentric and isometric load. But um, that 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 just says that if you're not haven't been well trained, it can be a little bit more difficult to absorb that eccentric force. But the key is being able to do absorb the uh, the rate of the eccentric force um, that you're absorbing is really important. But the transition from that eccentric force to reaccelerate, if that point is slow, then you give your opponents a lot more advantage because your ability to change direction and react to their movements is slower. So you want um, so the, there's a little phase called a mortization phase. So the transition between an eccentric contraction to a concentric contraction becomes really important for us. If we can narrow that gap between the two and make that a so-called amortization phase smaller, um, then our reaction time is quicker and we're able to change direction quicker. Um, so those are the things that we'll look at as part of the counter-movement jump because it gives us a good indication of those if you're looking at eccentric greater force development, concentric greater force development, and those sort of things. Right, right. Because you're landing and you're absorbing some of that force and then you'll have to immediately kind of twitch back up exactly yeah so with a you know like a rubber band exactly then, exactly so with a counter movement jump even though you're starting from a static position it's called a counter movement because it is a counter movement before you jump so the quicker you're able to absorb and create force um the better explosive ability you might have right is this counter movement jump as as this assessment tool uh, where does where did it begin i mean how, when did it start being used is this something that came from basketball oh, that's, because it's yeah. fascinating i'm like yeah, I, I'm a good old over um <laughs> I, I don't actually know its origins to be honest i think it's it's yeah. been just been around ever since i started my studies and i think it's it's become a little bit more interesting now with force yeah. plates being more readily available so it allows us to do a, a, a slightly more in depth um, analysis on the actual movement whereas in the past it was literally yeah. just jump we get a jump height and that's it now you can actually go into actually how are the forces being created to actually achieve that jump height so i think it's gone a little bit more in depth but it's been around for years right um one of the other things obviously you, you specialize in recovery and um and, and recovery and, and the amount of 
advances that have happened in in sports science with uh, regards to recovery is is really miraculous you know I, i mean we can see that on the field with the everything is getting faster and and stronger and people are playing for um longer and i i wanted to get your perspective on on what what are the kind of changes you have seen in recovery protocols from when you were first interested in sports science and and now that you've been a professional for i don't know 15 years yeah or more yeah I, I, it's a, it's a good question and also an interesting one and I, i'll tell you why i think i think the main crux of recovery we still well everyone likes the fancy equipment and all that but i think if we don't there's two things that we need to get right before those things come into play i think if we get our sleep as well as nutrition right that forms the big cake of our recovery mm-hmm. if those two things aren't getting right mm-hmm. all the little cherries on top the compression pants the pneumatic compression the ice bars the contrast bars all those things are never going to work as well as that could they could so i think the biggest message i could say is that right. one we need to get our sleep patterns 100% right and anything that disturbs our sleep patterns need to be corrected and then the nutrition side needs to be really well looked after to ensure that but in general what i'd say right. is i'll be doing an episode on sleep next so okay. that's quite interesting perfect perfect <laughs> yeah And athletes have like chronic sleep problems, right? Especially individual ones. Especially modern athletes with the amount of screen time we're getting. So the 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 blue light has this yeah. um, decrease yeah. in your um, circadian rhythm, and it decreases your circadian rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we did for t- because it mimics sunlight. Yeah. So one of our main things is just education for athletes over time, and I had specific protocols that the athletes should follow. I was never police police everything. but i would give them the information to make sure because you can't go around to athletes rooms and say are you sleeping now are you watching your phone are you doing this but you can give them the information on why you recommend they shouldn't be doing so limiting screen time right. to bed limiting caffeine intake prior to bed all those things become important but the interesting thing for me is as much as we periodize our training recovery needs to be prioritized within that training as well because certain modalities or recovery modalities are more important at certain times within your training cycle and if you don't get that right i think you also start struggling mm-hmm. and as a simple example um it, ice bars recently yeah. have been coming um under the scrutiny on attenuating force production so the the theory is or they have shown that over icing during a strength training phase can decrease your strength strength adaptations and that's fair that 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 that's pretty much accurate and it has been shown however if you are ice bathing i've never really seen teams go from a strength session into ice baths or icing after strength sessions so that's why it's important that we understand the context of our recovery strategies so for example when we lead when we were leading into probably the two weeks out from um tokyo or any any team i work with two weeks out from competition if ice baths are available that's probably when i'll start adding them into the program because at that point in time I'm not really looking for training adaptations but I'm looking for recovery and that needs to take precedent over so called physiological adaptations because we increasing intensity the volume might be decreasing but I need the players to be fully recovered and peaking at the right time um so that's just an example on how periodization of the actual recovery modalities become important because at certain periods you need the athletes so in a so called overreached or over uh, fatigue state to get some good physiological adaptations but when recovery is our main aim that's when we need to look at okay what are the best recovery modalities at this point in time to make sure that when we get to 
and Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games or World Cup, they're in the best possible shape they can be in. Right. So, so you're saying that icing to reduce inflammation would, would uh, also interfere with the body's own physiological response um, and will, will decrease adaptation. Exactly. Is it because the brain is not getting a signal that, okay, that muscle tissue is so damaged, I need to send more stuff there? Is that what's happening? So, so with, with um, icing, it, it can change the inflammatory response um, to an injury. And as we know now is that the inflammatory response is quite important for recovery process with different injuries. Um, and without that natural adaptation taking place, if we stop that nat natural adaptation, it can be detrimental down the line for that injury. I'm not saying don't ice at all, but I think right. the timing of the icing is extremely important. Um, and it, from that's from an injury right. perspective, but even from a recovery perspective, if you're playing back-to-back -back matches like it is in hockey often, um, then doing an ice bath is highly recommended because as much as um, there's still a lot of research showing that maybe it's not giving as many physiological changes as what we believe, the effect and the, the, the feeling it gives players post an ice bath on how fresh they feel makes a huge difference for them um, and we can't rule that out. Right. And match to match, of course, you're not looking for physiological adaptation, which exactly. is a long-term training goal. Exactly. Right. And you just want the player to be relaxed. Exactly. So we talked about ice baths. Let's also talk about something else that we are uh, commonly, I mean, everybody uses now. Uh, athletes use it and just normal people use it. It's become a big thing. Is is foam rollers. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple in my house. I, I use them. And how efficient are those? I mean, do they work? Uh, when are we supposed to use them? Yeah, no, for sure. So I think, again, from a research side of things is if you go and look for research to prove foam rollers work, you'll find. If you look for research to find foam rollers don't work, you also find that. So I think understanding the limitations yeah. as well as the benefits of it is really important. So in a paper we worked on a while back, what we did is just looked at, we did a review on all foam rolling um, papers that we possibly could find. And then we looked at um, trying to give practitioners parameters on what is the best practice for foam rollers and what are the possible effects and what we do know is that yes it feels really good and the feeling of recovery from post foam rolling in athletes is really good so if we're getting them to feel good if they feel like it's helping their recovery that is a box ticked for us whether it's actually changing tissue um, pliability if it's actually changing tissue temperature those sort of things that's a different story um, but we can't rule out right. the, the, if we can call it the placebo effect on how it makes an athlete feel. Um, if it feel, if they feel like it helps them with their mobility, helps them as part of their warm up, um, I feel that it is really beneficial. And it's something we use on a daily basis with any team that I've worked with. Just because it, the reality of the situation is you don't have a massage therapist always traveling with you. And if we can get some good tissue mm. prep and quality of tissue going, through the use of foam rotors or any myofascial release device, um, if we can call it that, then why not? And if players are feeling like it's beneficial for them, um, again, why not? So I don't force it on them, but I get if players really feel like it's beneficial for them and they know that this is something that they like to do pre-game or post-game, then I, I always err on the side of, okay, let them, let them do it. 
and you would use it both uh, as a warm up tool as well as uh, a recovery tool yeah so what we normally do is before match you do a priming session in that priming session if they they'll have 5 minutes to do their own mobility drills and stretching and foam rolling and that that's the time that they'll get allocated for that what we can call tissue prep and then we'll go into the actual what we call post-activation potentiation type priming effects pre-game um so yeah so pre-game and then post-game as well yeah right so we are almost at the end of this of this episode of secrets of sports science but before we go i just wanted to ask you if you had to uh, adapt a few of these protocols uh, recovery protocols as well as assessing um, fit, basic fitness levels for for the normal person for somebody who's generally active you know goes on a 3 4 5 kilometer run every day and maybe does a few push ups pull ups squats can that person kind of plan something to see what their progress is how fit they're feeling what should they do for recovery yeah look i think planning how fit you're feeling and if you're making progress is always quite a tough one i think now there's so many wearable devices that are out yeah. there that is, that may be useful to track your progress as such but the easiest way is the feeling of the the perceived exertion that you feel during doing the same session if you feel it's getting easier cool then you probably are improving as a simple simple way of looking at it but yeah it's right. very dependent on the individual very dependent on what type of training they're doing it's difficult for me to say okay this is the way you'll track it but i always like to suggest to people that they record uh, like an rpe post training so you say okay on a scale 1 to 10 how hard was that session how many minutes i did and you can just track your training load by doing rpm minutes and then just say say right. how hard did you find that session and just make simple notes and then you just start to make got a year eventually get a diary of just basic information yeah. on how you felt what was the session you did what was the intensity because some days you wake up and you do a 5k run and it feels super easy the next day you're going to wake up you have one K run and it feels like you ran 10 Ks. It's just the way the body works sometimes. Acknowledging that right. these things do change is important. Um, and then just maybe adjusting your training according to how you're feeling. And some of the wearables that are out there, I won't mention any names, but um, are quite useful, um, especially for the lay public to see how they're adapting and how they're feeling. Then on your second part of the question, I think the easiest thing to do is a lot of mobility drills are important and a lot of people don't actually make time to do their general warm up and stretching so sometimes i'd say okay why don't you just make 5 minutes in the morning 5 minutes before bed at night do a little bit of stretching mobility whatever it is just so you know okay you're ticking that box a little bit um and then a simple thing is right. contrast showers so everyone's got a generally got a um access to a shower so you can do a shower so yeah. you doing a cold shower for two minutes, a hot shower for one minute, and you end with a cold shower, do about five cycles. And then it should help a little bit, at least with the feeling of um, fatigue. Uh, it might not actually change any physiological adaptations, but it may, at least might feel, make you feel really good. Yeah, it does actually. I do that all, yeah. all the time, and it's, uh, exactly. it feels great. <laughs> and that, that's half the battle. Eh? If you start feeling good, that's half the battle. Half the battle, yeah. Great, uh, lovely talking to you as usual, uh, Wayne. And best of luck at the World Cup. And uh, I hope your team does. No worries. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This was an episode of Secrets of Sports Science. I'll be back next week with a new guest. Until then, if you have any questions, you can write to me at rudranil at gmail dot com. That's r u d r a n e i l at gmail dot com. 
For the latest updates on this podcast, do like and follow at HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.